Arizona's most recent election, the presidential preference election, had some serious bumps featuring long voter lines and a lot of frustration. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll look ahead to the next statewide contest as voters decide the fate of Proposition 123. We'll hear from a supporter and an opponent of the education funding measure. Plus, Phoenix has been called America's least sustainable city by people who don't live here. But Grady Gamage says Phoenix will actually buck the trend and be a leader in sustainability. We'll talk about his new book, The Future of the Suburban City, Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix. I'll also check in with former Arizona Republic business columnist John Talton on the topic. Talton's the author of the recent book, A Brief History of Phoenix. Also, we've gone two months without official rainfall in the valley, and that includes what's typically one of our wetter months. How could that affect our water supply? I'll check in with Cody Sheehy, maker of the new documentary, Beyond the Mirage, The Future of Water in the West. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, even with the challenges of climate change and water supply, can Phoenix really be a sustainable city into the future? Grady Gamage says yes. I'll talk with him about his new book, The Future of the Suburban City, Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix. We'll also get John Talton's perspectives. Plus, we've gone two months without official rainfall in Phoenix, and that includes what's typically one of our wetter months. How could that affect our water supply? I'll check in with Cody Sheehy, maker of the new documentary, Beyond the Mirage, The Future of Water in the West. We start today's and program with Proposition 123, which Arizona voters will decide on next month. If approved, the initiative would increase K-12 education funding by more than $3 billion over the course of a decade. Election day is May 17th. And with me for a few minutes to talk about Prop 123 is Joe Thomas, vice president of the Arizona Education Association. He's a supporter. Welcome, Joe. Oh, thank you. All right. So at its core, what is the best element about Prop 123 if it passes? Well, the best element would be that it's going to bring money into our schools this year. Uh, it passes at the end of the school year. Uh, May 17th is the election. Uh, if we can make sure that we count all the votes by the next day, we'll know if it's passed or not. And that could put in uh, well over $200 million into this school year. So teachers and support staff that are working right now could actually see an increase uh, in their uh, salaries and wages for this very year. I, thanks for clearing that up because I'm not sure people were sure it could get to the schools that quickly. Yes. Yes, it absolutely can. So what are you hearing from districts as far as how they're planning? Well, it, it's coming out in bits and pieces. You know, we have over 200 school districts in the state, but uh, we're starting to see for the very first time that districts actually have money to spend, excess money to spend, and they're spending it in the classroom. We're seeing our teachers and our support staff, the people that work up front, the people that drive the buses, seeing three, four, five, even 6% raises looking into next year if it passes. And this is making them very excited, especially over the last eight to 10 years of really not seeing much of an increase in pay. So how big an element is that then in retaining those good oh. teachers who keep leaving Arizona? Any, any business model will tell you if you want quality people in your business, you're going to put together a compensation package that's going to attract and retain them. And this goes a long way towards that because it's for the next 10 years. And that could be uh, people finishing out their career. It could be our mid-year uh, career people deciding to stay in. And it could be brand new teachers finally deciding that they do want to stay past one or two years and new people want to get into it. So for attraction uh, and ret retention of new teachers, this is, this is huge. So if this were not to pass, yeah. um, what sort of trouble could the state schools be in? Then? Well, schools will stay open. There's no question. You know, we're not going to shutter any doors, but it'll be uh, a repeat of the last four, five, six years. Uh, there, uh, there will not be much money uh, to attract and retain teachers. Uh, there'll be no money for textbooks. Uh, and we'll go back to the drawing board on finding another solution, uh, which could take another two or three years. So this is really an opportunity for Arizona to put um, their uh, actions where their rhetoric is. We say we want great schools. We say we want to put money into education. Here's our opportunity to do it May 17th. So based on the conflict that had existed 
between lawmakers mm-hmm. and districts and how things had gone. Are we in a situation because the states were getting a shortfall there when it came to funding, even in passing Prop 123, is this, could this be seen as sort of treading water? Well, it's not going to solve every problem, and that's something that the audience really needs to understand because I hear that a lot is, well, this isn't going to solve all of education's problems. It's not, de- it's not designed to. It is designed to solve the issue where the legislature had refused to increase base-level funding. I don't want to get too wonkish, but every year Arizona has an inflationary increase to the base-level per-pupil funding. That wasn't being done. Uh, for going on four or five years, and this solves that. We still have more to do, and that's what we want to tackle on May 18th, is let's look at state funding for full-day kindergarten. Let's look at getting more money to attract and retain uh, educators in the classroom, but let's come up with a plan for that. We can do both, and that's what the teachers and that's what uh, the people that work in the front office and that's what the parents, I believe, really want to do. Let's pass Prop 123, and let's move on to the next hurdle. Okay, now since you decided to put the cart before the horse, Joe, I'm going to bring this up. Since May 18th, are you seeing enough of a broad coalition of people who are going to say that if Prop 123 passes on May 17th, okay, Arizona's moving in a positive direction, or are you afraid there's going to be some lackadaisical response to that? Well, good, we passed that. Let's take a deep breath. Things are fixed. Right. Well, Arizona's a real independent state, so you've got people all over the place on that. I know that if anyone were to go and talk to teachers and ask them, what is it that you, that you need, they would be able to say, I need time with my students. And that means we need more money for, to, to keep the good teachers, to keep the great teacher down the hall from me here because I, you know they teach freshman English, and I'm going to teach sophomore English. I need that great freshman English teacher so I have students ready to teach sophomore English to. But I also need a lower class size to where I can spend enough time with the students that truly need it day to day to move them forward. And that's what educators would tell people, and so that's why we've got to continue to move forward. We, you know, There's only 49 states that spend more money in their education than we do, and this is not going to move us at that ranking, but that's the long-term look we've got to, we have to uh, uh, tackle. We have to, we have to move the football down the field a little bit more every year. Prop 123 is the first step towards that. Some people have expressed some concerns about what's going on at the legislature, talk mm-hmm. of expanding vouchers and the idea that that could turn off people thinking about Prop 123. You're worried about that at all? Well, I'm worried about the legislature every year. And whether we pass Prop 123 or not, we're going to have certain people at the legislature that think that we should privatize education. And we're going to push back against that every year. The school district in the, in the tiny town in Oklahoma that I grew up in was the center of the community. And that's the, what it should be. In every neighborhood, no matter how big the city is, a big metropolitan area like Phoenix, the schools should still be the center of the community. And that's the direction we're wanting to take Arizona in. There will always be people that want to do the other, um, whether we pass Prop 123 or not, which is why we have to do both. Pass it, and then let's move on to fixing our schools even further. And Joe, finally, not to get us too broadly when it comes mm-hmm. to voting, but of course, people saw what happened with the presidential preference election. Obviously, <laughs> that, was, that was a big deal, but this is also a statewide election coming up on May 17th. Are you encouraging people who are supporters to mail in their ballots or go in on the day of? Well, I encourage everybody. I'm a U.S. government teacher, so I encourage everybody to take advantage of the permanent early voter list because it gives you uh, a month to really investigate uh, more than just the candidates, but ballot issues like this. So I would encourage everybody to, to register, to get on the permanent early voter list and mail that in. Or if you're like me and you procrastinate, you can still walk it in on the day. You can walk to the front of the line and then get out of the line. Um, I don't think we're going to see the same mistakes that were made in the presidential preferential election on May 17th. Uh, I would be very surprised if we did that twice. Joe Thomas is vice president of the Arizona Education Association. He's a supporter of Prop 123. Joe, thanks so much. No, thank you. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The most high-profile opponent of Prop 123 has been State Treasurer Jeff DeWitt, but there are other opponents as well. That includes Morgan Abraham, chair of the No on Prop 123 campaign, who joins me now from southern Arizona. Morgan, good morning. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you. So from your perspective, what is the worst element of Prop 123? Yes, I think when you look at Prop 123, you know, you see it's, it's a fundamental change to how we fund education, and it's, it's designed that way by the politicians in Phoenix. Um, so we, we call it the three T's, triggers, trusts, and tax cuts. Okay, can you dig in more deeply on that? Yeah, so the triggers. So obviously there's so many triggers built into one through two, three that prevent K-12 from getting the, the funding that voters demanded in 2000. To be honest, I can live with that. But there's one trigger that I can't live with, and that's the 49% trigger, which basically stays in our Constitution forever. It's a constitutional change, and it dictates that we'll never be able to spend more than 49% of our general fund on K-12 education forever. Now, that might not be a, you know, that, might, that number doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but 49% under the current budget is basically what we need to spend in order to get back to 2007 levels of funding. So if Prop 123 passes and, you know, there's no significant changes to the budget, we will never get back to 2007 levels of funding. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, there have been some concerns expressed by Treasurer DeWitt about the use of state trust uh, fund, state tr- trust fund money, excuse me, and using that sort of money going forward and using more of it and distributing it differently. Do you have concerns yeah. about that? I have a lot of concerns. Yeah. So basically, right now, we're in, a, we're in a situation where we have a $650 million budget surplus at the legislature. So the politicians are, you know, the legislature is purposely wanting to spend the land trust instead of spending the, the budget surplus um, at the Capitol. And the, the effects of using that land trust, whenever you spend more money, you're going to get less money going out to the future. So in 2026, after Prop 123 funding runs out, the land trust is going to pay out $100 million less for education because we spent an extra $2 billion on it. Um, when you're talking about Prop 123, you're really only talking about an additional $250 million. So we're basically losing out an $100 million a year forever, 2026, 2027, the year 3000. This is forever because we don't want to spend the budget surplus at the capital. Now, Morgan, as Joe Thomas just told us, though, this is just step one. This is not a, a final uh, part of the process. There has to be more happening going forward. Are you thinking to yourself that if Prop 123 passes, that's going to be it, so all the concerns you have will be built in? Because we will have more time to then take and take other steps and say to the legislature, maybe you should spend more of this. Here's how. Sure. No, I, I, I trust the, you know, the education community. There was going to be multiple steps after this. I mean, heard rumors of, you know, Prop 4, 5, 6 and other things like that. But the fear is here that our budget surplus, which should be going to education, and previously, you know, 2007, 2008, that money was going to education before it was slashed, balanced the budget. My fear is that that budget surplus is going to be cut with corporate taxes and income taxes, just like the governor said in his State of the State speech. And once you cut a tax in Arizona, you, it's very hard to undo it. You need a two-thirds majority at the legislature. So once they cut this money that was supposed to be going to education and they artificially fund education with land trust money, you know, that's over. We're never getting that money back. So now are you a legitimate believer that there does need to be more funding for K-12? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I wasn't even happy in 2007 when, you know, pre-lawsuit days. I want way more money for education. I just am very afraid with the passage of Prop 123 that, one, we're never going to be able to get back to 2007 levels of funding because of the trigger, the 49% trigger, and, two, that they're going to cut taxes with the money that's supposed to be going to education um, by, by using the land trust instead of the general fund money. I mean, this was designed by the legislature and the governor for a specific reason, and the reason is that they want to divert money from education long term. Well, some would wonder then what the alternatives are, considering the legislature has not moved yeah. forward with acting that. So what, what other ideas would you have? Of course. So we were in a court case. The, the Supreme Court vote, v- voted five to nothing, a unanimous decision that the legislature violated the VPA, the Voter Protection Act. We never gave the Supreme Court a chance to tell the legislature to pony up. We, we never got to that point in the court case. So what we're saying is let's keep going through the courts 
and then let's let the legislature let's let the Supreme Court do its job and tell the legislature that to pay the money that they you know that they owe the the schools. And on top of that, I mean that's just the the, the court reality. I mean if you look at there's cases in Washington and Kansas where that exact scenario is going on, and the Supreme Court is having a lot of impact on the amount of money we spend on education. But there's also the political reality, and that is that there's no way the governor and the legislature can get away with not funding education. I mean there was a poll ran in July. The governor was at a 23 percent approval rating, primarily because of education. They know that they have to fund it in some way, and we want it funded properly, not with you know the use of land trust money, which has long-term consequences. We want our tax dollars going to K-12, and we don't want them cutting more taxes. But Morgan, finally, someone, some would argue then you're in a position where you're just waiting, and even if what you're saying about the court case makes total sense, people are then going to say mm-hmm. Arizona's K-12 schools are then falling further and further behind, and that makes the state less competitive. It hurts our kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I get that. I get that argument, and we completely understand. I mean, my mom's a teacher. I have two little brothers going in the K-12 system. They need funding now. Um, but the reality is that Prop 123 has long-term consequences that last forever. And so when we're talking about how much money Prop 123 gives us, we're talking about you know a, a drop in the bucket, where maybe 1% to 2% teacher raises, which are desperately needed, but not a lot of money. And so the long-term consequences, the 49% trigger, the depletion of the land trust, these are real things. And then, of course, tax cuts that will impact our state forever. And so we shouldn't be trading those those long-term consequences for a 1% pay bump for teachers this year. We can wait another year and do this properly. Okay, Morgan Abraham, chair of the No on Prop 123 campaign. Morgan, thank you for the time. Thank you for having me. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll find out about a new supermarket going into downtown Phoenix. We'll also talk about the sustainability of Phoenix in the future with Grady Gamage. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by APS Solutions for Business, helping small businesses assess their energy use and make their business more efficient so they can manage their bottom line. Learn more at APS.com slash better bottom line. This is Here and Now on 91.5 and online at KJZZ.org. You can also download the KJZZ mobile app. Join us this afternoon at 1 for News Hour from the BBC. Well, plenty of sunshine across the state at this hour. It's 84 degrees in Tucson and in Casa Grande, 70 in Prescott, 59 degrees in Flagstaff, and it's 89 right now in Yuma. Checking Valley traffic on the US 60 westbound, a collision is blocking the intersection at Val Vista Drive. Thanks to all the members who made the program Fun Drive a success. We heard from 546 listeners who became new members. Your support makes possible the high-quality public service you expect. If you didn't have the chance to make your gift of support, you can still do so at kjzz.org, and we thank you. Partly sunny right now in Phoenix, and it's 87 degrees at 1120. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Downtown Phoenix has been considered a food desert by many, an area that isn't directly served by a supermarket. When Cityscape was in the development stages, an AJ's market was part of the planning. But when Bashes, which owns AJ's, filed for bankruptcy, that eliminated the chances of loading up on produce and bread and frozen dinners for downtown residents. Now, after all these years, it sounds like Fry's is going to break the streak and build a new 55,000-square-foot store between Cityscape and Collier Center, with me for a few minutes to talk about this development is Mark Stapp, who is director of the Master of Real Estate Development at ASU. Mark, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So how big a deal could this be for downtown Phoenix? Uh, I, I think it's a big deal. It's something that um, has been needed, but it's you know this is not a chicken and egg situation. There had to be more rooftops that were being added to the, the downtown marketplace in order to make 
a grocery store feasible. Um, so I think this is a representation of the maturation of uh, metropolitan Phoenix in general and downtown specifically. Now, why does Fry's make sense? There are many people who would have said, boy, AJ's might not have been that great a fit, which is considered a real upscale place. Fry's maybe serving more people? Yeah, I, so Fry's is, you know, owned by Kroger's. And um, you look at some of the different types of stores that they have, and it's a pretty broad range. Um, you know, they're a mainstream grocer, and grocers work on pretty small margins. Um, they're very sophisticated in their site location analysis. Um, so they're looking at this, this sub-market and saying, listen, we think where it's going, and given the population characteristics, is a good place to be. And I think that's for the population that's going to be down there. They're a good grocer to have down there. So from, from your perspective, it does seem as though the food desert – uh, phrase does apply to this area, but there are some who would say, well, there's a safe way at 3rd Street and McDowell. There are other places generally in that area that people are being served, but maybe further south they're not. Do you think this is a, a supermarket that actually uh, cover a broad enough area of the city? Yeah, certainly it's going to cover a broad enough area of the city. I think one of the things, because of the location that it's proposed at, it's also going to shift some of the current development trends towards the the uh, core of downtown and start making feasible some of the development that is south of downtown, that's proposed for south of downtown, much more desirable. You know, you've got a lot of what's going on along Roosevelt Row and in that area in, in the Fillmore neighborhood where a lot of the units are being added. This, I think, pushes some of the feasibility for new units to be developed uh, south of Washington and towards the uh, uh, warehouse district. Now, I'm going to go to the chicken and egg scenario, even though you mentioned when we started, maybe it's not really part of that. But I'm curious about how having that um, affects, let's say, the the spiritual value of an area and also the property value as well. Does having a supermarket there actually bring more people in? And does it make the people who live there feel better about the community? Well, I, you know, it's a, it's a basic service, and and I think one of the differences between what you mentioned before, the originally proposed AJ's, and something like a Fry's, is the fact that Fry's is going to be serving a broader segment of the population, and I think people that are living in the general area are going to feel that they're getting a service that they've long desired to have. So I think that as far as the spirit of the place, I think it begins to change. Grocery stores are, are social connectors, too, because they bring people together. So they generate a lot of activity. And I think that's going to affect the character of, of downtown and how people perceive it. And that's going to have a spillover effect to the surrounding neighborhoods where you have had traditionally limited service for a population that couldn't afford to shop at an AJ's, as an example. Um, so I, I do think it's going to have a profound impact. They get that store built. They get it open. Activity is going to su- substantially increase in the area. So I, I have to ask this question. I'm wondering about balancing the, the needs and desires of the developer versus the residents, because I suppose that's the reason it, it took so long to actually get a supermarket down there. It seems as though, you mentioned with uh, profit margins being narrow for supermarkets, is that all playing into this, the fact that it really had to be a smart deal for developers? It really had to be that and less about, well, this is going to serve a a nice area of the community. 
this didn't have to do with a smart deal for the developers. Okay. It had to do with a smart deal for the grocer. Okay. Um, we've seen projects where uh, in order to try and bring a grocer in, a developer may subsidize them for a while. Those deals are tough to make work. There's got to be a primary market area that supports having a grocery store there in order to make it sustainable in the long run. And, and that's what it took. It took more units and more disposable income living in those units for the grocer to say, wait a minute, it's now time. Here's a tipping point. And so Red, smart guys, they do a lot of this kind of development, also understand what drives the, the decision-making by the grocers. Mark Stapp is director of the Master of Real Estate Development Program at ASU. Mark, thanks as always. My pleasure. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Phoenix has been called one of the least sustainable cities in the U.S. It's in a desert and water is bound to run out. We're currently in the midst of an extended drought and climate change is expected to make that situation worse. So why is attorney and Morrison Institute senior fellow Grady Gamage not worried about this? Or is he just better at hiding his concerns than the rest of us are? His new book is called The Future of the Suburban City, Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix. He'll be at Changing Hands in Phoenix to talk about the book on April 26th. And he joins me now. Hi, Grady. Hey, Steve. Good to see you. And joining us by phone from Seattle is John Talton of RogueColumnist.com. He's author of A Brief History of Phoenix. John, good morning. Hi, Steve. Hi, Grady. Congratulations. Thanks, John. I loved your brief history. I read it uh, just after it came out. Well, Grady, let's start about um, writing about a Phoenix that you consider to be highly adaptable. Uh, You and I have also discussed, though, in the past, the limited amount of leadership in this area. And I guess water management might be an exception, but how is Phoenix going to actually adapt without great leaders to do this? Um, well, so I, I, I want to correct that I'm not – it's not that I'm not at all worried about the sustainability of Phoenix. I think all cities need to be worried about the impact of, of climate change. And I do think the single biggest challenge Phoenix faces is sort of the political will to deal with problems. I think it's a problem we have in general in America right now with the sort of breakdown of our political system. But I think the best way to analyze whether a city is sustainable or not is to look at its history and look at its ability to meet challenges in the past. And water is probably the best example of where Phoenix has managed to deal with and manage its way through um, a a complicated water situation for a very long period of time. Mm John, I wonder what you think about uh, water management certainly has been something Phoenix has been given credit for. But I want to come back to that leadership question because there are some people who are concerned that even if a lot of people recognize what the challenges may be, do we have the people in place who are going to recognize that as well and say, this is what we need to do to fix it? Well, Grady is absolutely right that it it is a problem and it, it's one nationwide Um I hate to even get into the word sustainable because it's almost become a punch word. Uh, Grady uses a better word, resilience. Um, And one of the biggest challenges that any city, conurbanation, anything you want to call it, faces is how fragile it is. And one of the most interesting challenges that Phoenix faces is a less engaged, more paralyzed federal government. Because without the federal government, we would still be 
haul in hay to Fort McDowell, and there'd be twelve of us. Yeah, and one of the one of the great ironies of the West in general is that uh, we think of the federal government as our enemy. I mean, every day in the Arizona legislature, you hear the federal government demonized. But John's right; we couldn't be here without them. It's you know, Mark Reisner, who wrote Cadillac Desert years ago, said that behind every rugged individualist is a government agency. Um, it's true, uh, and and we need to sort of remember that. Well, so as we're remembering it, then, Grady, what's what? I don't want to. I don't want to overly uh, overstate the fact that you're optimistic about this. But based on Phoenix's history, give people a little bit of, and I'll give John a chance, of course, with a brief history of Phoenix as well. But what is it that makes you think that Phoenix has this history of adaptability that a lot of people who've well, moved in the last ten years don't know about? Sure. I mean, let me back up for a minute and just say that um, I think all cities are challenged um, with uh, regard to sustainability, and climate change creates challenges for for all cities. Mm-hmm. I think the the good news for Phoenix is that the challenges are likely to be similar in kind to the challenges we've always dealt with. It's hot and it's dry. We, we're pretty good at figuring out how to deal with hot and dry. We wouldn't be here um, but for the invention of air conditioning and the ability to move water great distances through federally financed projects. So the fact that we were able to do that and to deal with the particular challenges of this place, I think um, creates a sense of optimism for me that we will be able to deal with those challenges in the future. But in contrast, if you think about coastal cities, I won't pick on Seattle, John, I don't know the situation well enough, but think about lower Manhattan. Um, Sea level is projected to rise significantly um, in the next 20 to 30 years even is the the latest statistics. Well, that's a massive challenge of a different kind than uh, lower Manhattan has had to deal with in the last uh, uh, 50 years. And it will be very expensive for coastal cities to deal with challenges of that nature. If you're in Florida, you got sea level rise and you also got hurricanes are likely to increase. We have built a city based on a highly variable water supply and a high degree of variability in temperature and climate. The amplitude of that variability is going to increase in the future, but going from a significant amplitude to an even greater one is easier than going from no expected amplitude of variability to a a significant amplitude. So I I think that gives us uh, cause for optimism. John, you want to respond to that? Well, I think that we don't know. Uh, Climate change puts us into real terra incognita. Uh, What we do know is that uh, 97% of those scientists who actually study climate say it's getting worse faster than they expected. And yes, it is going to affect every place and it will affect Phoenix. And so one of the challenges Phoenix faces is discontinuity. Um, You know, John Maynard Keynes said something like, uh, the idea of the future being different from the present is so repugnant to our conventional modes of thought and behavior that most of us offer great resistance to acting on it in practice. And man, that's not an exact quote, but that is America in so many ways. And I think that for Phoenix, we have to remember that past performance is not a guarantee of future results. <laughs> Phoenix has been through several major crises, the droughts of the 1890s, followed by the floods, and then the Great Depression, which was much worse than most people realize, um, each time had to be restarted. So I don't think we should be smug. Uh, 
you know, there's a danger that people will get the Grady Gamage for dummies, which is everything is fine. And what they need to do is read Grady's book, which is a much more nuanced take on things and on the challenges that Phoenix faces, because it's it's not going to be an easy road. Um, the, the One of the biggest challenges is will we predicate everything on a high rate of population growth or can we make a turn into a higher quality economy that is not so dependent on bringing in more people i john i greatly appreciate you're plugging the actual need to read the book as opposed to just listening to a radio show. Um, it is important, uh, and and I and I appreciate the fact that you actually have have read through it. Um, there are there is a lot of subtlety here, and there's a lot of complexity to managing through these things. And I want to make clear, it's not just about water. Um, the book also tries to deal with the sort of suburban fabric of Phoenix. The title's actually "The Future of the Suburban City," because I I think there are lessons here for um, all of the post-war automobile-dominated, single-family home-dominated cities in America, which are often criticized as unsustainable. Um, that is a, a particular development form related to cheap petroleum is what built those cities. And as we move away from cheap petroleum, we have to think about um, how that kind of an urban fabric can adapt. We can't just scrap it all and turn everything into Greenwich Village. But I think we can make small adaptive changes over time that will that will allow that kind of urban fabric to survive. But Grady, when you've already made a commitment, as this community has in so many ways, to, to what people would call sprawl and the fact you have a lot of people living out in the desert and having done these things and, and have not uh, adapted to and have not really desired to have transportation options, yes, many more people are wanting to live in the inner city, increasing the density. But what about all those people who don't? Some of those people who are only here six to eight months a year. Um, yeah, well, the the problem with snowbirds is one I don't really deal with in the book, frankly. Um, but the, you know, some of what's in this book was in the earlier book I wrote that, that we've talked about before, which is that we're not as sprawling as people think we are. We're actually um, relatively dense for being a city based on single-family homes. And I think it is possible to further densify those neighborhoods by adding uh, granny flats and more units, by redeveloping a lot of the big box shopping centers as uh, uh, multifamily um, areas. Um, and I think that, coupled with the advent of autonomous cars, probably mostly alternative fuel autonomous cars, will allow the suburban fabric to survive and adapt. That, that doesn't mean autonomous cars take the place of mass transit, which I, I think we need more of uh, and has been more successful than uh, – light rail has been more successful than I thought it would be when I wrote the first book. Not more than John thought it would be. John, follow up on that, would you? Well, first, it's an excellent radio show. I just don't want people to take this, the quick Grady take. Um, yeah, I think it's important to recognize that suburbia is with us. We have enormous sunk costs, and it. it's not going to change overnight. But you can retrofit parts of suburbia to uh, provide some variety. One of the things that Phoenix is so unusual in is that it's so hard to compare it to any other city in the country uh, because it let its downtown essentially die and is rebuilding it kind of on a suburban basis. And so where Phoenix is competing against all these cities for talent and capital that have plenty of single family houses 
and plenty of malls and plenty of freeways, but they also have cool downtowns and they have cool urban boutiques retrofitted into their suburbs like uh, Denver's done with its light rail uh, in places like Englewood and Littleton. So, yeah, we need to be thinking about how do we, um, A, retrofit suburbia some, and B, wean ourselves off these massive subsidies for sprawl. So, John, I wish you had been here over the weekend. The American Planning Association, which is all the city planners in America, the National Conference was in Phoenix, started Friday, just ended yesterday. And I have to say, I think they were all impressed by what's happened in downtown Phoenix. Um, it was packed. There were people on the streets. I was in a bar Sunday night, uh, and you couldn't get a seat. Um, you know, as someone who now has worked in downtown Phoenix you. since the 1970s, it's getting better. It's got a ways to go. But uh, I think these guys from all over the country were genuinely surprised um, at what downtown Phoenix was like. Grady, I have to come back to what we're talking about with, uh, with growth, because as John mentioned, this has been a place that has been so dependent on population growth to keep going. Can we continue to have population growth and also be resilient at the same time without stretching the bounds of sustainability. Yeah, I, you know, one of the uh, chapters in the book is sort of about the nature of our boom and bust economy, which is it, we consciously designed this place around a boom and bust economy. And I go to all these real estate seminars at which people are debating, when is the recovery going to arrive? Um, well, the news for those guys is this is it. We are in the recovery. We have recovered. Um, we are not going to boom the way we did in uh, 2007, uh, 2008. And hopefully that means we're not going to bust the way we did in 2011. Um, I think we are in a period, partly it's just the fact that we've got so much critical mass and we've gotten so big, and partly it's that we are moving away from an economy that primary driver of which is just pure population growth. Uh, I think we are seeing some new drivers emerge in our economy other than cheap houses and sunshine. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that will moderate uh, both the boom and the bust over time and will be a good thing for Phoenix. John, what do you make of that? Well, I partly buy it. Phoenix needs more real headquarters, and especially downtown. Uh, one other thing that's going to moderate it is that you're going to have a lot more poor old people. And so, and and yes, uh, Arizona in general has a slightly younger population. Those are not the Anglo's, but that's another subject. But uh, so much of Phoenix's real estate has depended on people retiring there. Uh, retirement is changing, and it's not going to be the same as it was. So there are many, many of these challenges we have to wrestle with to come out on the other end and say, uh, is this city going to be sustained? Well, sure, in one form or another, Baghdad's still there. But can it leap to Phoenix 3.0, uh, 1.0 being agriculture, 2.0 being real estate and, and sprawl? And 3.0 being, of course, real estate is still there, but at the headwaters of the technology economy, and especially when so many jobs risk being automated. Grady, one minute left. Yeah, I like the 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 thing. And, and I do think there are some signs for Arizona 3.0. One of the things that's happening is um, we are getting more investment in um, 
building um, and I hesitate to use these words call centers, but nevertheless, they are largely um, based on the fact that we don't have natural disasters uh, like a lot of the country does. And so the State Farm Regional Headquarters in Tempe, the data centers in Chandler are all based on that. That's a niche we should think about. And there are other niches like that. Alternative energy is one. Um, the uh, proximity to Mexico is one. I think those can form the basis of an Arizona 3.0 economy. Grady Gamage is the author of the new book, The Future of the Suburban City, Lessons from Sustaining Phoenix. He'll be at Changing Hands, the Phoenix location, to talk about the book April 26th. And John Talton, you can find him at roguecolumnist.com. He's also author of A Brief History of Phoenix. Thank you both, as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. Always good to be here. Thank you, Steve. And still to come on here and now, we'll talk about the future of water in the Southwest and what about the Diamondbacks' upcoming season. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Maricopa Community Colleges, presenting Artists of Promise, where students share their talent in the areas of dance, music, theater, and more. Open to the public. April 20th at the Herberger Theater. Maricopa.edu slash arts. Good morning. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Taking a look at the Valley forecast, partly sunny today, very, very warm. We're looking for a high near 98 degrees, but then we're going to start cooling off overnight and tomorrow cloudy skies with a high of just 88, down to 81 for Friday with a 40% chance for some showers. In Valley traffic right now, I-10 eastbound. Watch out for restrictions on the 7th Street exit ramp. Here now from Boston's coming up at noon, we'll get a preview of the upcoming New York presidential primary and what effect is the drop in natural gas prices having on, on the economy in Pennsylvania, where energy companies are laying off workers. NPR's Here Now starts in less than 20 minutes. It's partly sunny right now in Phoenix and 87 degrees at 1143. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. 2016 started out as a wetter-than-normal year in Arizona, but we've gone a couple of months without official rainfall in Phoenix, which included February, usually one of our rainier periods. That doesn't necessarily mean the area's water supply challenges are any greater than they already were, but it's an indication the long-running drought continues. In his new documentary, Beyond the Mirage, The Future of Water in the West, Cody Sheehy explores where we are, what we know, and what technological advances could help in the coming years. The film is the product of a proposal that was unanimously selected the winner of the new Arizona Prize, Water Consciousness Challenge. Cody, what should we be focused on? Is it planning, infrastructure, technology, awareness? Well, I think it's it's all of the above. Um, it's going The solutions to this problem, some of them are technology, some of them are infrastructure, and uh, many of them are going to be expensive, and they have uh, different uh, stakeholders and, and different competing interests. And so that's why the water awareness part is so critical, because we need a public that has a very sophisticated knowledge about these issues so that we can have a conversation that will help steer our decision makers uh, in a direction that we want to go. Now, specifically, Arizona has been given credit for being better at planning and that sort of thing, especially I think Phoenix and Tucson now recently announced a partnership, so there is optimism when it comes to that. But do you think, based on what you've seen, there's simply not enough in that sense? Like, yes, okay, there is at least thinking about planning, but the actual hardcore planning isn't quite there yet? You know, um, I'm not a, a water expert, but I did have the opportunity to interview uh, more than 60 people, you know, throughout the Southwest. And one thing that I took away from a lot of those interviews is there is a sense of urgency now that we need to move beyond um, that conversation and into 
really looking at how to start implementing um, big big projects if they need to be big projects or these solutions um, they need to be started now because a lot of them can take you know decades to actually implement and we see that with uh, you know in California for example with the Carlsbad uh, desalination plant that plant took more than 12 years to permit um, it's an expensive project there we have to find ways to finance that and so a lot of these are long-term um, solutions uh, it's much more than desalination of course but the key thing is that we're now at the point where we need to actually start uh, start putting some of those plans or concepts into action. What did people tell you about the drought? Because it's clear that the drought has had a huge impact, but because we don't know based on history whether this is a drought that may be, I don't want to say coming to an end, but maybe limited in its scope, or it may go on for another 20 years. Um, did that come up, and, and how does that affect planning? Yeah, that was a big part of the film, really. I mean, are we at the end of a 15-year drought? Is this the 15th year? Or is this the 15th year of a 50-year drought? And it's something that we just can't predict at this point. But when you look at uh, tree ring records and reconstructed Colorado river flows, you can see that there are uh, very long-term droughts that have happened in the past, and there's no reason to think that it couldn't happen again. And in, in some cases, some scientists I talked to did start to hint a little bit that the fingerprints of a longer drought could be on this one based on, on temperatures and, and things like that. So uh, we do need to prepare for, you know, the worst case scenario, um, of course, hoping for the best. Uh, one, one wet year like we had this year, and, and even that is not enough to really get us out of the situation. It would take several years of, of above average precipitation to, to change the course of what's been going on in this last drought. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Joining me from Southern Arizona is Cody Sheehy. He's the filmmaker behind Beyond the Mirage, The Future of Water in the West. It'll premiere in Tucson on air on Channel 6 on Friday, April the 15th, and we'll be able to see it locally here in Phoenix coming up next month. Cody, what about growth? Growth has always been so dependent in this state on the fact that we have good water sources, we have good energy sources. Is that something that came up as well, the, the concern about whether we can keep growing without access to, to water on a regular basis? Some people um, look at, you know, growth curves into the future, and they, they wonder, you know, is it possible to grow forever? And so there is this idea that if we continue to, you know, need more and more and more water into the future, that it just does seem like there is a point where that's, that's impossible. But you know, most of the mainstream uh, viewpoints that I encountered uh, from water managers uh, and other other experts continue to operate within the paradigm that there is room to grow, that there is water available, and uh, with increased conservation in municipal areas, uh, especially conservation within agriculture, um, the ability to to allocate that water efficiently and then in some cases actually augment our supply with with new sources of water and that could be you know things from uh, wastewater reuse where we're using the water more than one time that can increase our overall supply and that's really a a good first step Um, there's ideas about changing how we manage our watersheds that can actually increase the amount of water that's flowing through our rivers which uh, increases the available water supply and then, of course, uh, way out on the outside, uh, the more expensive options down the road could be desalination of some of our deep 
uh, brackish water, um, groundwater supplies. Um, so we could augment our supplies. And in total, um, it does give us the ability to probably grow uh, to some point into the future. But it is sort of that existential question out there of how long this can, can continue. And that's something that was in the back of my mind uh, the whole time while we were working on this project. Now, not that long ago, Governor Doug Ducey and some other water experts from Arizona went to a an event, a major water event in Israel. Uh, what can Arizona learn from Israel? Is there obvious stuff? Yeah, we were. Uh, our team actually went to that same event, and we saw the governor there, and were able to listen to his um, his talks that he gave. And we had a chance to travel uh, throughout the, the country of Israel and meet with some of their water experts. And it was really exciting for me uh, to to see this, um, some of these applications, some of these solutions actually practically being used and see how they fit together uh, for Israel. And, you know, when I started this project, I was a bit of a layperson when it came to water. And as I learned more, it seemed like the problems that faced us were just overwhelming. But the trip to Israel changed, changed my mind in a lot of ways and shows that it is possible uh, to meet this challenge. Um, what's happening in Israel probably isn't an exact blueprint for the Southwest, but on the other hand, it does show how some of these solutions can fit together, and it's important that they're they're done right for each local area that we're in. Um, there's different uh, suite of solutions for each particular location, um, but but it is possible, and that's what I saw. I think what we need now is the the political will to actually start to fund some of these projects and start to actually create those solutions and see those on the ground here. Cody Sheehy is the filmmaker behind the new documentary Beyond the Mirage, The Future of Water in the West. It'll air in Tucson on Friday night, April the 15th, and then we'll air on Channel 8 in Phoenix next month. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The Arizona Coyotes put together a promising season and have some young players that fans are excited about, but the playoffs were still out of reach. The Arizona Diamondbacks have just gotten started for the 2016 baseball season and expectations are high. Todd Walsh of Fox Sports Arizona covers both organizations closely and joins us from Nashville for a few minutes. Hi, Todd. How are you? Good to, good to hear from you, Steve. Thanks for asking. I'm good. Thank we, you. we were kind of hoping you'd be at the Grand Ole Opry, but I guess you're too busy for that. I just walked by it. I just walked by Legends Corner and uh, Tootsie's Orchid Lounge. I just wanted to see if there was any vibe with the passing of Merle Haggard. Literally seconds yeah, ago, I was exactly. just there. Yep, I was there. Yep. So, Todd, talk to us a little bit about this time of year for you, with hockey coming to a close and baseball just getting underway. As a guy who's followed sports, as a huge sports fan, what does it feel like to you? Uh, insomnia is sort of the rule of the day. I always have two bouts of it, and that's when my seasons collide, and that's just the joy of doing this job. So I'm sort of keeping my eye on uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks. I didn't obviously get out to, to spring training because I was pretty deep entrenched in, in the Coyotes. But um, I, I, I kind of like joining late because then it forces me to catch up and chase stories that maybe have slipped through the cracks. But I'm certainly aware of of um, what's happening over there and then kind of watching this, this season come to an end. And I, I am struck by the actually gave a little speech to an event not too long ago by the feeling that I have right now as opposed to how I felt a year ago. I wished the season away a year ago, and I lamented that. I should have known it after 30 years in this business and over 50 years on this planet that you should never do that because there's always a reason. And last year sort of set the table for this year. And the conclusion of this season 
just uh, brings forth to me just the word hope, and there really is hope, and, and the proof is really in the pudding on the ice. You see these young guys, and so I, I, I kind of feel propelled now into baseball where you've got, a, again, these two seasons and two teams sort of mirror each other in, in, in complexing ways, but I, I kind of feel like I'm in the perfect spot here where I can't wait to get back to hockey. Now I can't wait to feel the, the run of baseball and the Diamondbacks. You have such a unique perspective on things, even though you've been on the sports side of things for such a long time. That's why, that's why I wanted to start with that question, this idea of sort of people have different feelings about what hockey is on the ice and, and baseball mm-hmm. is on this grass. You know, George Carlin had his football versus baseball sort of thing. As, as someone who's, who's, so, who's so entrenched with the hockey team and then also does all the baseball reporting, do you feel like there's a different vibe with the types of players? I mean, if they're all nice guys and whatnot, but like a different vibe with what the team feels like and how the fans feel about them? Um, yeah, I mean, I, we... You, probably would need two or three hours with me on that there, there's a whole subculture conversation to that but to me I, and this is the beauty of it and, I, and i'm not just blowing smoke up our partners because I, I am so close i do have the best seat in the house to both of them i am keenly aware of the culture in the room and and these guys and their connection to their fan base and the organizations and just how lucky we are in arizona to have teams like the Coyotes and the Diamondbacks run the way that they are run with the leadership that they have in place. Dave Tippett, Chip Hill, uh, not not similar in age, but in mentality and the way they demand the respect of their team and in turn force that respect outward to the community and their fan bases. And to have guys in rooms like Paul Goldschmidt and Shane Doan, you could go to 30 other cities in professional sports and you'd be hard-pressed to find a city that has one type of guy like that, not just on the ice or in the field of play, but in the community, in the room, within their own family. It, it is striking to me how lucky we are. So I, I I know how lucky I am to be able to see this and feel it and be around it every day. And I, I sometimes I think fans lose sight of that. I mean, Larry Fitzgerald showed up at a celebrity a waiters event for the Coyotes. And he was standing up there with Shane Doan. And I just I looked out to the people and said, look, the, the Mount Rushmore of sports it, in Arizona, here's two of the three mm. for current-day athletes. And the last year, Paul Goldschmidt was at that event. And <clears throat> I, I don't ever, ever, ever want to lose sight of how fortunate we are to have that. So I'm not sure if I answered your question directly, but I, I, know, what I, I know what I see and I know what I feel, and I know how lucky I am to, to be around. And I like to be able to tell that story and those stories about those guys because it's important to me. And you tell really interesting stories. I, I used to enjoy listening to um, you on the pregame show of the Coyotes because you would you would put together these you know really sort of public radio esque sort of features that that sound rich and interesting stories. Is there is there someone on the team this year that maybe the average fan didn't know about that really hit you in a kind of a short version? Yeah, I mean, I, and I still do that show. And thank you. That is the highest praise. I think about that a lot and. I still work very hard at that show, and I like being able to do that and add layers to it and depth to it. And radio is, to me, the last neighborhood, and, and, and I will never, ever lose sight of it and always want to do that. But there are a couple of guys, like the story of goaltender Louis Domingue, the backup goalie, who basically told the team, I'm out of here, I don't want to come back this year, I'm going to go to Europe, and then beg back, beg back. And, he, and they brought him back, and then all of a sudden, two goaltenders go down to injury, and here's this rookie goalie that gets over 30 starts and 22 straight starts. And you, you don't ever get to see things like that happen in this sport where a young guy in that position gets that kind of 
exposure. So the appreciation that he has for that, he left and got it back. There's a young kid named Jordan Martinuk who just got named the hardest working player. He's Dave Tippett's favorite player. He's He's on the ice in the critical moments of the game when the game there's a one goal game or trying to kill penalty. He's a rookie, you know, and and his his appreciation for this and the fact that he realized he got voted by the fans for that and it's a very real thing. This is from a guy in a podunk town in Alberta. But to me, the one thing is the, the story that will transcend all of this, and he is uh, the it literally is the torch will be passed at some point. Is is Max Domi, uh, a young guy that has type one diabetes who takes time wherever he goes, to touch somebody in that community, if you will. In every single rink we go to, I go out and I stand there on the bench for warm-ups on the road, and I look around the rink, and inevitably, in every city in hockey in North America that we've been to, is a child holding up a sign that says, this is my name, this is my my blood count, (laughs) thanks, Max Domi. And inevitably, I watch him go around, acknowledge that kid, just like Shane Doan has done for 20 years, flip him a puck, and more often than not, see that kid in the locker room after a game. And that just reminds me that this is more than just blood sport and, you know, multimillionaires and billionaires trying to make money and sell beer in arenas and fill, and fill arenas. It's that. And that still happens. And I, I do not shy. If you watch our shows, you, you'll see our producers and directors constantly showing that, and there's a reason for it. And... I'm glad they do. I, mean, I could go on with the whole John yeah. Scott story, Shane Doan this year. But to me, it's that one. That's the one that resonates to me at this particular point. Well, Todd, I hate to leave you with just a minute left in this because we should devote more time to it. Although we have here on this station, and, and obviously you guys did it at Fox Sports as well, but any any sort of quick element, uh, again, less than a minute that you could yep. sort of tell people about Joe Gargiola? Uh I, I thought about this. I, I knew you'd go there. To me, the the, the, the thing that lasts for me is that in the end, at the end of his story arc, we had him. He decided that this was going to be his home and where he would broadcast his final games, and that's what we did with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He is really the first godfather of Major League Baseball before even Jerry Colangelo. He was standing out in front of propositions and votes to try and get Major League Baseball here, and then when it got here, he was the guy, and he was really the, the, the best storyteller, and as I wrote in my essay about him, to me, as I remember Joe, his stories are based on humility and, and inquisitiveness, but they're great stories because he was a great storyteller and he was a great story himself. So that's all that in a nutshell, and we'll miss him. Todd Walsh of Fox Sports Arizona, who covers the Arizona Coyotes and Arizona Diamondbacks very closely. He joined us from Nashville. Todd, thanks as always. Steve, thank you. Thanks for checking in. Be well. Take care. That's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations on sustainability with Grady Gamage and John Talton or our ProCon on Proposition 123 or one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon or you can download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. NPR's Here and Now from Boston is up next on member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great afternoon. It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by the Black Theater Troupe presenting Black Pearl Sings through April 24th. In search of lost African-American folk music, the voice of the pearl is found, an authentic doorway to the past. BlackTheaterTroupe.org.